The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Today, I am joined by Dr. Yael Tamir. She is the author of Why Nationalism. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, my name is uh, Yael. Most people call me Yuli. Uh, my name is Yael Tamir. I'm uh, from Israel. Uh, I, I'm a political theorist, but also um, a political activist. I've, you know, I've my life has been, uh, you know, divided into political activism and uh, playing a role in both in the parliament and the government. And as a political theorist, where I'm writing and teaching uh, political theory, both uh, in Israel and uh, in the UK, uh, I've been interested in nationalism since the 90s uh, and was very much uh, intrigued by the revival of uh, the public interest in nationalism that seems to have died in the late 80s. Um, and therefore, I've uh, written this book called Why Nationalism, which is for me an attempt to revisit a topic I've been dealing with for many, many years and uh, examining the changes that have occurred, uh, but also things that have continued over time uh, in our discussion and interest in uh, nationalism. Do you mentioned that you're both an activist and a theorist. Do you feel that your activism has shaped your political theory as a result? I think they feed each other. I um, certainly started to get interested in nationalism because I was an activist. Then I was, uh, I was a peace activist. I was very much involved in attempts to uh, establish a two-state solution uh, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and talking about the right to self-determination of both peoples and why we do want states of our own uh, intrigued me to think about it both uh, politically and theoretically. Uh, then I started doing my research and working on these topics and that fed into my politics. So um, I think it was a good exchange between theory and practice that allowed me to do um, some, uh, I think, more in-depth inquiry of how politicians shape their thinking and how their thinking shaped their actions. It's an interesting discussion, interesting way to think. I just reviewed um, uh, Isaiah Berlin's um, Against the Current, which I know is somebody that you studied under that you're even more familiar than I am. But something that I found very, um, that came up a lot within Berlin's work was the idea of of personal experiences shaping um, shaping philosophies and ideas, so it's it's interesting to think on your own sense of how your own experiences can shape your ideas. So, 
Um, I, I want to jump into the book here. Um, you mentioned your book is obviously about nationalism pri- primarily, but it's also about liberalism and how the two kind of fit together. Why don't we start out by just saying, hey, let's define what is nationalism and define what is liberalism. Well, this is a mighty question. Two mighty questions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, um, Let's start with liberalism. And and again, you know, American liberalism is not like European liberalism and certainly not like Israeli liberalism. So liberalism, again, all these concepts are very, it's that cluster concepts. You know, they they are uh, connected, but they are not identical. Um, I think that what shapes liberalism is a belief uh, in freedom as a human goal. And I think all liberals, whatever they are, uh, they share this view that in order to be um, an agent, a, a more moral and political agent. And freedom is something that is essential to all of us uh, in order to flourish. So you can't really um, express yourself and maybe uh, maintain your dignity without uh, having a certain amount of freedom. And then, you know, there's an economic liberalism and there are other kinds of liberalism. There, There are many kinds of liberalism that start from that point of view and go different ways. Yeah, but um, I, think, I think the way you described it is good in terms of personal freedom, because I think that's the type of liberalism you're talking about within your book. Am I right? Yeah, but uh, yes, I think that the kind of liberalism I'm concerned with, actually all the political theory I am uh, interested in is deeply grounded in our... Uh, attempt to retain self-dignity, self-esteem, to to find a place um, from uh, within us that leaves us uh, a room to, um, as people call it now, to be the authors of our lives. And this is where I think we have a great interest in who we are in determining what Azar Berlin very eloquently called our positive freedom. It's not that only nobody interrupts what we are doing, but we authorize ourselves to do what we are doing. And we give ourselves this room for self-governance that is very important for us as human beings. I I like how you brought in the idea of of identity. I I, want to bring up a quote that you actually, that I, I, that really caught my attention in chapter six. You mentioned like morality, identity is a sphere in which no one can be passive. Identity carries not only the mark of our ancestors and contemporaries, but also of our own free choices. Freedom and determinism keep interacting in our lives, making us who we are. And I think this gets allows us to kind of begin the discussion about nationalism because you don't necessarily see liberalism and, and nationalism as being against each other, you see aspects of it as opportunities to be able to see a symbiosis um, in people's quest for identity. Um, am I speaking out of, out of character in that? No, I think it's exactly what I mean. I think when I think about myself, 
uh, as an activist, as an individual, as a feminist, I, I have an interest in freedom in a very personal way, but I also have an interest in freedom uh, with regard to the group I belong to. I want to express myself as a feminist, as a woman. I want to express myself as an Israeli, as a Jew. Um, and I want to express myself as an individual. And all these layers interact. My understanding of who I am as a person is certainly shaped by the fact that I'm a woman, that I'm Jewish, that I live in Israel, uh, that I'm of a certain uh, you know, um, economic class. All those things shape me. Um, and I shape them because as I said, I'm not passive. I'm an active interactor with who I am and I'm uh, shaping who I am, but I'm not having uh, maybe the privilege or the necessity to do it from point zero. I start from where I am and then I act on that in order to shape my identity and my belonging and my commitments and my obligations and so on. Now, you see, in your book, you emphasize a critical difference between a cosmopolitan elite that benefits from globalization and pretty much everybody else um, who is unable to necessarily just go wherever they want. They're tied to their place, um, partly due to economics, partly due to culture, I would imagine. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, getting us back to a kind of talking about how how there's a distinction between these two groups how how the cosmopolitan elite has necessarily benefited from globalization and how other people are are driven towards nationalism? You talk about it a lot in your book. Can you kind of give us some clarification on that? The, the global elite enjoys uh, a plethora of opportunities. You know, um, if you really belong to the elite, if you are um, open to different cultures, different opportunities, um, you certainly have more to gain from being able to move around, to be less committed to your country and more committed to your own uh, private um, sense of, you know, achievement. So, you know, uh, actually, I should admit, I belong to the global elite. I am a global trotter, at least I was before the corona. Um, and, you know, I, I chose where to teach and where to live. And I could do, you know, I could do more than I think people who are grounded in the sense that they cannot travel that easily, that their skills are very localized. Uh, and their abilities are more restricted. But I can see how the fact that people are movable, they, they, you know, they see their identity as partly dependent on their skills, not on their belonging, um, weakens the obligation towards weak members of societies. You have to be, I think, um, a little bit altruistic to uh, say, I can, you know, I can move to wherever there is uh, uh, you know, uh, the, I can move to a country where the best education system is. Uh, nevertheless, I stay here in order to improve my education system in order for others to benefit. Or I can, you know, get private health, but I'm going to go to public hospital and I'm going to support public health because it, it will benefit other people. 
I can get it better for myself, but nevertheless, I see that this is a more egocentric point of view and I don't wanna be that kind of person. Um, and I think weakness of the will, something all of us suffer from, uh, leads a lot of people with opportunities to say, well, you know, I'll first of all secure my opportunities, then I'll look back on the needs of others. And that is certainly a problem for um, the, the, the establishment of welfare states and societies that are grounded in, um, in responsibility and giving to, um, to each other. I was fascinated by the way that you turned the idealism of John Lennon on its head in your book, um, in the discussion of his idea of newtopia, because he talks about in a song Imagine and in his uh, activism, the idea of a world where there are no boundaries. And of course, John Lennon lived a life where there were no boundaries. You mentioned how he applies for a visa during this time to live in New York with no expectation that it's going to be denied. Um, and, and there's a sense of idealism. I mean, clearly, everybody would say there's a sense of idealism in John Lennon, but it's a very cosmopolitan sense of idealism. Yeah, it's the idealism of the privileged. Um, those who, um, apart from the visa, actually don't need anything else. They don't need health services. They don't need schooling. They, they uh, don't need security for housing or employment or anything else. Um, I think that it's interesting because the corona, I think, makes us all very much um, able to see the way we are dependent on people who are close to us and on large system because, you know, um, no one can provide the health services necessary to save people now on their own. I think very few people have at home uh, the kind of uh, support system that can keep them alive if they unfortunately get ill. So suddenly a lot of people understand that it's not only about moving around, it's about really creating infrastructures, this heavy loaded sort of uh, activity that a lot of people distaste. Uh, but our lives are dependent on that from, you know, from railways to airlines to hospitals and schools. We can't do it on our own and we need the state to support for us a system um, of services. And, you know, John Lennon, you know, could have said, who cares? But, uh, you know, suppose he would rather have a better police uh, service uh, around where he was shot or, uh, you know, um, people, people, you, even the, the wealthiest of people depend on a system. We're all dependent. And that yeah. is something that we usually don't see when things go well. No, of course. Um, now, that kind of comes back to an idea that's central in your book, and I want to bring this up early. Um, just to ask you point blank, so do you feel then that cosmopolitanism can lead to a failure to embrace a sense of responsibility for one's own community? Yeah, I think the temptation is too big. And, yeah. you know, I, I, now, again, the corona forced us back home. All of us are stuck somewhere that we mostly call home. Uh, I can tell you that tens of thousands of Israelis who were all around the world came back to Israel, uh, suddenly saying, okay, I feel safer here because it's home, because the health system, maybe we trust it more, just because we trust people that we know, 
and we feel more comfortable with in times of crisis. Uh, so suddenly a lot of people who preached about, you know, uh, let's go somewhere and, you know, rebuild our life uh, uh, just to fit our own interests, say, well, actually our interest is to be tied with other interests of other people around us because this is where we belong and this is where we feel comfortable when it's difficult. And difficult times clarify things to people, I think, in, um, in, in a way. I definitely think the coronavirus changes the way that we have to think about things. And um, I've spent a lot of time in terms of thinking about democracy. Um, I feel like people, especially from the aspect of liberalism, but also populism, focus a lot on on the rights and privileges, what we're going to get back. But it's important for democracy to succeed to start talking about obligations and responsibilities. Because if you don't talk about your obligations and responsibilities uh, to your country, to your nation, to your democracy, it, democracy just can't function. It, it doesn't work if all you're concerned about is what it does for you, if you're never concerned about what you're going to do uh, for others. Yeah, I think it was a... It's, a, it's an idea rooted in philosophy that vulnerability is something that is the essence of social contract. Uh, and I think I, this vulnerability now surfaced and it, it makes us uh, realize how much we need a system. And we want the system to be democratic because we want to have a chance to fight for our own preferences. But we also want it to be caring and Therefore, the democratic welfare state, I think, is going to be something that reemerges. It's not only democracy, it's a caring democracy. And caring democracy is usually where nation states, historically at least. Now, I, I want to kind of move over to another concept you brought up in the book. You, you mentioned um, you spent some time talking about the Catalan uh, separatist movement mm -hmm. as an example of kind of a balkanization of national sentiments. What I found really interesting was how, and I'd never heard anybody mention this, to be honest with you, how Barcelona began to differentiate its own identity, even from Catalan as a result. Mm. Where is the limit to uh, what we kind of identify as our national identity? And, and from that, what, what is the incentive to actually unify a group um, rather than saying, hey, we want further local control? Uh, over time? It's a great question. I don't know that I have an answer to this. Uh, I always think that nationalism is like babushka, you know, these Russian dolls within every identity, there is a smaller identity and a smaller identity and a smaller identity. And, and I think when you look at Catalonia and then in Barcelona, yeah, there is this. And, and then, you know, there are some people within Barcelona would say there are neighborhoods within Barcelona who go this way and neighborhoods within Barcelona who go that way. Uh, those who are closer to the, you know, to the shore are more liberal. Those inland are, uh, it's endless. So um, nationalism is a bit, not a bit, nationalism is artificial. Where you stop is not, um, it's not a, though nationalism wants you to think that it's a natural stopping point, it's never natural. Um, on the other hand, what makes me suspicious of uh, separatist movement of the rich and the powerful is that 
it's not really about identity, it's about economic interest. So, um, you know, it's always this balance of why do you want to have a separate identity? Do you feel so separate that, you know, you can't really identify with all the rest or you just see that all the rest are rather similar, but I'd just be better off if I'm not with them because they're poorer or they're, they have other kinds of needs. And Barcelona, Catalonia, Spain is a very interesting question because the identities are separated and there's a long history of separatism. It's not something that now emerged. But then the, obviously there are more regions in Spain that, are, um, that have a, 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 an identity that is separate and significantly from the historical point of view that want to stay within Spain rather than separate. So it's not, you know, if you look at the map of Spain, you say, okay, from all the regions, why is Catalonia trying to separate itself? Is it just because it's immensely more different than the rest? Or is it just because it's wealthier than the rest? And that's where I think you start um, asking yourself about motivations, whether they're nationalist or whether they're economic. And usually, the two interact, so it's never a pure answer. But I think the Barcelona case is still an open question, a very interesting one for me. It's interesting how you talk about it as an economic interest and how those two interact. Um, as an American, I've been reading some of the uh, literature from uh, African Americans about race, and it's difficult to parse out the sense of white identity versus their economic interests versus their sense of identity as, as a race. And obviously white Americans refuse to acknowledge that there is a sense of white identity, except for the extreme uh, far right possibly. Um, but African-American writers of course would say that um, of course there's no difference between, you know, um, ethnic or, or racial or national identity and economic interests. And, and I'd imagine that that's probably similar uh, throughout the world. Yeah, I, you know, the question of uh, black and white identity is very interesting. And uh, again, I think uh, from different perspectives, you see differently. Um, um, when you say black li life matter, um, you certainly try to identify a, a connection between your faith and your color. So, uh, or uh, in the human rights movement uh, that called itself human rights movement, but a lot of the humans had rights. It was like expanding the right to blacks or to women or to gays. So, um, uh, we, we have a sort of a, uh, the message here is sort of uh, complex. On the one hand, we say we're all alike, but then when it comes to identity politics and to the rights to be, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, to be represented in the public sphere, so we say no, we want women and we want blacks and people of color. So. Is it important that we're different or is it important that we are the same? Both are important and therefore I think this um, dialogue between identities is, is far more complex. It's not that there is no white identity. Obviously because I'm a white woman, my faith is of a different kind. If I was a black woman or if I was a white man, it, was, it would have been different. 
So it's not a, it's not insignificant in my life. Um, so it's, you don't have to be racist to understand that. Uh, on the other hand, I don't think my rights depend on this. My rights depend on me being human. So it's a, you know, we have to be more nuanced about it. It's not black or white. It's like we have uh, to be more sophisticated about the identity and the way it, it uh, influences our public and personal uh, judgments. Of course, it, to, to just kind of mention one more thing on this topic, it, was, it struck me as I went through the book a second time. The, the parallel where in the United States there's a discussion where um, people, the, the rallying cry for, for African-Americans and, and people who are sympathetic to the, their cause um, has been Black Lives Matter. In opposition to that, uh, conservatives have sometimes chanted back, all lives matter. It's reminiscent to me a little bit of the national sympathies versus universal sympathies where um, it's, and it's, it's completely turned upside down when you look at it from that direction where nationalists say, Hey, um, well, you mentioned the idea of saying just simply saying America first um, isn't necessarily negative because a person could say, Hey, what about us? And of course the cosmopolitan turns around and says, well, everybody matters. You know, you're saying that there's something to it to say, Hey, the people who, who are in your country, their rights and their ideas do matter. And that I, I see a parallel between the two, two situations there. Um, because a person feels if they're constantly told, Hey, everybody matters. They feel like they're not being listened to as a result. Yes. I think that uh, you want to met the people who ask to be recognized are the people who, who seem or feel that they were invisible. They want to be, to reemerge, so to speak, uh, on the public scene and to be heard. So um, certainly this is why they want their life to matter and their voice to matter. You know, like feminists used to say about, you know, we need a voice and it's um, partly because you feel silenced. Uh, so this is a, an important aspect of, of who we are and what we demand. Now, the fact that I want my voice to be here doesn't mean that I think other voices are insignificant. I always call it, you know, the grandma effect, since I'm a proud grandma. Uh, I always say my grandchildren are the best. I know, you know, all grandmother says that. Um, I'm not irrational saying that. They are not irrational saying that. We just know that this is a way to express our love and commitment to our grandchildren. There's nothing, I don't have a sense of superiority because I think my grandchildren are the best and indeed they are the best. Uh, but, um, you know, as Jewish grandmother says, I'll show you the pictures. Uh, <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, this is, we live with this duality of saying that for me, they are the best. For other grandmas, their children are the best. My nationalism is very valuable for me. I don't think other nationalism don't matter. My life matters, other people's life matter. And that's, I think, the, the kind of thing that people, um, you know, fail to see when saying America first to Israel first. Yes, I want my countrymen to be committed to uh, the well-being of Israel. I don't think that this means that we should be aggressive toward others or occupy the Palestinians or, you know, don't care about their rights. It's just that we as a community, that's what holds us together. Or as a family, we work for 
our common good because that's the meaning of a common good. We share something that we want to promote. So there was a piece I read this week that speaks to exactly what you just said. Um, the idea that just because you believe in your own people doesn't mean you necessarily believe in an imperialism that they need to invade other countries. I read this piece by uh, Igor Torbakov um, about Russian nationalism. It was called The Parting of Ways, the Kremlin Leadership in Russia's New Generation Nationalist Thinkers. And he's, he's not necessarily a nationalist thinker. He's writing about uh, the new generation of nationalist thinkers. But in, in discussing them, uh, this is a quote from his, his article, and uh, it's, uh, Russia was a country that colonized itself. Russia acted both as the subject and the object of the colonization process. And what he's discussing is that imperialism actually made it so Russia, rather than having true Russian nationalism that was about the Russian people, it, it was never about the Russian people because it's it, imperialism when you, you constantly try to conquer others and force your views upon the other nationalism, nationalist identities gets away from actually coming back to respecting your own nation. It's, it's too focused on, on others, the external, rather than focusing on your own internal demands. And that really struck me because I thought that was very not the same as your piece, but um, paralleled it to the idea that nationalism isn't, in, isn't necessarily moving towards imperialism. In fact, in many ways, once you become imperialistic and dominating, you're actually moving away from the true nationalist cause. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I read part of the piece, I must admit, I didn't have time to read all of it, and it's very interesting. Um, I don't know. I actually think a lot of Russians discovered their identity in the process of Russification of other nations because suddenly they were Russians. Mm -hmm. And Russia is certainly a very diverse nation, right? It's a yes. sort of a complex identity. Who knows what they are? But suddenly when, I don't know, Russians were sent to Latvia or to Estonia to, in the process of Russification, they discovered they're Russians. By the way, when Russian Jews came to Israel, and they were Jews and they were admitted as Israeli citizens, they very soon discovered they were Russians. <laughs> um, I was uh, one, in one of my public roles, I was the Minister of Immigration, and that was during the, the Russian wave of immigration. Astonishing how these people were coming to Israel because they were Jews, the moment they landed here, they were Russians. And they're very clearly, they had a whole ideology of what it is to be Russian. And if you would, by the way, they, some of them came from Moscow, some of them came from Gorgia. I mean, there was nothing in common except the fact that they came from the former Soviet Union. But they had an identity and it was fascinating to see how quickly they knew how to define what it is to be Russian. I don't know if they could have answered the same thing, the same answer uh, when they were in Russia, because in Russia they were Jews. But when they came here, they knew immediately that they were Russian and they knew what it means to be Russian. So it's identity is a tricky thing, I, I, I admit. Ta-Nehisi Coates talks about a similar phenomenon in one of his books. I think it was Eight Years in Power. Sometimes books blend together for me. Anyway, he, uh, he's uh, a very vocal African-American um, writing about race. Yeah, and he's... Uh, 
he discusses how he goes to France and that's where he really understood how he was American because amid foreign living in the United States, he felt like an outsider. But then when he went to France, he realized how he had so much in common with other Americans. And it's just interesting to me how you mentioned how uh, Russian uh, Jews would come to Israel and then recognize how they're now Russian when previously they probably felt outside the Russian sphere when they lived in actual Russia. Yeah. I think so. all of us understand it. I'm always, I'm, I'm, I'm more Israeli when I'm abroad. I'm more a feminist. <laughs> I'm a more man. I'm, <laughs> and that's, you know, this correct. <laughs> I, I always know that I'm a woman when I find myself surrounded. Like, you know, when I was in the government, there were only two women, 17 men around us. You always feel, first of all, a woman. That, that, that's natural, you know, your your identity is in dialogue with your surrounding. It's nothing, you know, I, I wonder what Robinson Crusoe felt, but probably you know, <laughs> in order to, to, to know who he is. And he was an Englishman. Right? <laughs> Very true. Very true. So something that's interesting to me is the idea of, of um, nationalism kind of came to, kind of had a comeback as you had what's oftentimes referred to as the Pax Americana, where you had American hegemony and and clearly an established liberal world order for a period of time. Um, as 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 the Iron Curtain fell, you had a large number of new countries in Eastern Europe. I'm curious, do you think that small nation states... Um, and and by small, I mean uh, oftentimes in the Pacific, you even have microstates, micronations. Do you think that that's possible because of a general global peace? And I know that there are wars out there, but you have somewhat of a liberal order established. Um, you know, would a would a less stable world order actually bring about consolidation of nations? Do you think? Um, yeah, I think. Uh, it's very difficult to be a small state. Um, though there are some very successful small states, uh, but they're very vulnerable. Um, and there was a time, you know, in the in the mid nineteenth uh, century, where people had the viability principle. They said small state cannot survive. Let's put lots of small states together in order to have a more viable state. And this is how Yugoslavia and Slovakia and other states in Eastern Europe were created, merged together in order to survive. Um, I think together with the more free trade and more uh, global possibilities and less violent, uh, you know, violent uh, struggles, uh, it's easier for small state to survive. Um, especially arrangements like NATO and, you know, um, umbrella organization make it easier for small states to survive. It's interesting because... And I should say 1992. So it's interesting because um, you mentioned about uh, the liberal free trade, kind of having a liberal world order over things. It's interesting because some of the cosmopolitan values actually allow the environment then for some nation states to even exist. 
because without without free trade, it, it's it's difficult to imagine that a tiny nation like Monaco would possibly be able to have the goods and services necessary to exist. Yeah, even um, larger states than Monaco needs as trade. Um, of yeah, I think the the. Yeah, you know, in 1992, I wrote a piece about how the European community is going to allow the flourishing of nationalism. Everybody thought that the, the Europe, uh, the EU will create a post-national order. And I said, no, 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 not every small state can be a small state and then be under the economic and, and military umbrella of the Union. And I think it proved itself because more and more small states have emerged since then. Um, so there is a, a, a um, if, if the world was totally closed, I mean, everybody would go back to strict isolation, isolation of national states, then um, small states would have collapsed. Um, when the world goes totally open, also small states collapse because they lose their, you know, elites, they lose their viability and they become empty. Uh, and a lot of states, a lot of small states in the world now suffer from this phenomena. Open movement emptied a lot of East European states. People just, the, the able people, the young people, the productive people moved to the West and they became vacant. So it, again, it, it's a game of balances. And I think this is the, the main uh, also bottom line of my book. Uh, the right solution, both on the personal level, on the national level, on the global level, is a game of balancing out valuable ideas. So um, you, when you go to an extreme, um, you bring about the disaster. And it, this extreme could be justice, equality, liberty, whatever. If you take it just to extreme, uh, then uh, your world uh, is becoming uh, uncontrollable in a sense. And, 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 and people are paying a very high price for that. So I think this is the big Azar Berlin idea that you don't take ideas to the logical conclusion, but you try to balance all the good ideas, valuable ideas, in order to create what he called an untidy compromise, which I think actually is the most we can achieve. I like how there's a yin and yang feel between liberalism and nationalism mm -hmm. with the approach that you have. And it feels like as, as we look closer and closer at the world that there's some validity to it because you can see that yin, yin and yang actually existing because we just talked about how small states, they, they exist. Nationalist sentiment can exist only, only so long as they have security to be able to exist. Um, otherwise, it, it feels like those nationalist sentiments would would lead to a sense of imperialism, which which isn't necessarily nationalism, at least at least for those who are being um, being conquered. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of truth to what you're talking about in terms of that. Now, I, I'd like to kind of bring us to some discussion on solutions. Um, one thing that you mentioned in your book, and like I'm not sure how I completely feel in terms of this as an example. It was uh, we used Bernie Sanders. Um, who's a leftist politician in the United States. He called for a sense of national responsibility, uh, at least in terms of the upper class. Um, but my uneasy, it, because he, he, he's asking for higher taxes, asking for people to be able to give back essentially to their country. But 
my uneasiness is that he seems to be only referring to the 1% while he's emphasizing for the 99% what they should get. Um, Wouldn't a leftist form of nationalism still require an emphasis on responsibilities from everyone? I think I, I actually think it does, but I don't think Bernie Sanders thinks only about. He thinks that one percent has a special responsibility because they have gathered so many resources over and above their fair share in the society. But everybody who can contribute needs to contribute, and um, I think in in the sixties and seventies, Bernie Sanders used to speak about the fact that he's a patriot and you know that he's. Yeah, proud of being an American because he fights for rights and, and the dignity of every American citizen. And I think that those are obligations that all of us have to fulfill. When it comes to redistribution of resources, it's natural to emphasize those who own a lot um, and have the ability to change maybe the equation. I, I found it interesting that you, were, um, that you handled the education portfolio in Israel because you talk quite a bit about education in your book. Um, like, and, and you kind of do it, you do it directly, but it's, it's not like a major chapter or something. But at one point in chapter 13, you actually say national education is the main victim of globalization. And you talk about how important national education is. Can you talk a little bit about that? And also about how your experience actually handling the education portfolio shaped your views on that? I think that small countries, marginal countries with marginal languages like Israel, uh, always have this dilemma. I mean, it's cheaper and more worthwhile economically to teach everyone to speak English as a first language. We don't do that because we have a sense of uh, national pride and we value the continuation of Hebrew, which is an ancient language. and. We value the fact that we can read texts that are 3,000 years old. I think this is one of the, we are one of the only people who can really prove our ancient roots by our linguistic origins. Um, So uh, we pay a price for this. And it's not a, I think it's a very emotional decision. Language rights are very, very um, debatable issues and are very, very emotional. And um, as a minister, I dealt with it all along because it's uh, whether Israel should teach Hebrew or English, whether Palestinian Israelis should teach Arab, Arabic first, then Hebrew, then English, which makes them, it's much more challenging for them, but they would not give up Arabic and I understand and respect it. Um, so I'm very, very well aware of the fact that we pay a price for preserving our identity. On the other hand, I think that a world where everybody speaks English and governed by one or two cultures um, is quite frightening for me. I think I I flourish because I have this, um, you know, ability to be grounded in a culture that I grew up in and I cherish and has a history. Obviously, I could have grown up in America and speak English as my native language and so on. Uh, but if we still think that diversity has some value and each nation brings into this, you know, melange a little bit of its own values, history, taste, memories, um, then I wouldn't like this to disappear. 
I wouldn't like us all to be the same. I would like us to respect differences, but not to be uniform. And that I think is part of what we do when we teach, when we decide how to teach our children. Um, we're not ready yet. Maybe one day it will happen to be all speaking, maybe a sort of a computer type gibberish where everybody can converse freely around the world. But I, I, I think from my point of view, maybe I'm old fashioned. I would be a terrible world to live in. I, I would agree with that. Um, it's, it's interesting because education is, was very important to people in terms of uh, Republican philosophy and democratic theory for a long time, but it's kind of gotten away from that. And some of that's due to the kind of liberal cosmopolitan ethos that uh, more neoliberalism than liberalism, I'd say. The idea that education is really just about economics and about, about getting a job. Um, even in the United States, though, education was always about more than that. Um, the United States has a very long tradition of, of uh, teaching civics, which people continue to say, hey, we need to expand that tradition, uh, put more emphasis into it. But it's it's different because even in the United Kingdom, there isn't a tradition of teaching civics. It's, there's a very specific idea of what you're supposed to learn, even in the United States, which is in many ways the most cosmopolitan nation since people try to emulate the United States through its sense of soft power and its, um, and its language, English, and everything. That even the United States has its own sense of what our national education should be about. So I can understand how you're talking about in, in a country like Israel or, or any other country that national education is very important. Um, do you think neoliberalism is a large reason why we've moved away from using education as, as a way of transmitting culture and focusing solely on what do you need to know to be able to get a job? I think the, the real reason is that countries, especially in the Western world, felt very secure in their identity and um, they didn't really feel the need to fight for, um, to preserve it. So they sort of let it go and say, okay, now that we know that we're all, you know, it's over, liberalism is gonna reign, our, our identity is secure, we, we can just, you know, each take care of his or her own interests. But once this collapses, once you realize you have to fight for who you are, then I think, nationalism and the desire to preserve your identity come back and more like you, I think France is a very interesting example the French never felt secure they always felt attacked and you know since the end of colonialism they felt that they are shrinking and they used to worry a lot about French culture and you know Maison Francais exists because they worry about French culture and they want people to appreciate it the Germans were worried about their culture, you know, ghetto houses are all around the world in order to teach people to appreciate uh, German culture. So the, a sense of vulnerability, even in the cultural sense, uh, I think make nations more aware of the need to preserve something that is common to their culture and their identity and history. Cultures that feel very secure and the United States did, did feel very secure for a while, not any longer, um, I think are less uh, engaged in collective uh, mission and more um, and allow more 
for individualism to settle in. So I, I want to take a take a step back, actually, real quick. You you dedicate your book to your teacher and mentor Isaiah Berlin. Um, I mentioned already that this week I reviewed his book against the current, and it's interesting because it concludes with a chapter titled "Nationalism: Past Neglect and Present Power." So nationalism was a was an idea that that Berlin thought quite a bit about himself. Uh, I'd like to know um, if you can talk a little bit about how Isaiah Berlin's ideas influenced your own thoughts about nationalism. Well, first of all, the reason he became my teacher was that I came to Oxford wanting to write the thesis on nationalism and nobody wanted to be my supervisor. (laughs) Really? Yeah, nobody. And one day having uh, actually tea in a... In the garden, I met Azar Berlin who said to me, what are you doing? I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm writing or I'm trying to write a, a thesis for nationalism, but nobody wants to be my supervisor because nobody thinks it's important. And he laughed. He had a sort of a very deep laugh. And he said, well, you can come and be tutored by me. And he, he had no students by then. And I said, really? He said, yes. And, and sure enough, like two days later, his secretary left me a note in my pigeonhole, there were no phones then, and said, you know, sir, I Berlin would love to have tea with you. Um, so I came and he said, well, you know, I'm really interested in Israel and Zionism and nationalism. And if you're interested, then um, we can uh, work together, which was obviously a great surprise and a great pleasure. And I, I was very much influenced by his work on nationalism. And I think that... Um, it's amazing. He wrote this piece in the 60s where everybody wanted to say nationalism is dead. You know, forget about nationalism. And he always felt that it was an important idea that actually ends the piece by saying you can't understand the world without understanding nationalism. And that was my feeling. And this is why I connected so much to everything he said about nationalism. And he was very, I think, open-minded about the idea that nationalism could go the liberal way, but could, because he read and wrote about Herzen and Metzini and other liberal nationalists, but he, he was also very uh, aware of the extreme type of nationalism that, you know, people on the chauvinistic, xenophobic, even uh, Nazi uh, period uh, expressed. So he was open to um, both interpretation and he was um, interested very much like I was in why do nations go this way or that way. Uh, I think the one thing we shared that we didn't think there is um, a national character that says this nation is going to be that way and this nation is going to be that way and you know this is how you classify the world. We thought it was more complex than that and the, the real question is who goes where, when, and why? I find it so fascinating that he picked you because nobody else would work with you because you were studying nationalism. Yeah, with a deserted child. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, the college nobody wanted. <laughs> it's it's interesting reading against the current because he's writing about people who are neglected or or misunderstood or stood against um, were in the minority in terms of their views at the time. 
And sometimes when I'm reading him discussing other people, I feel like he's almost talking about himself. Isaiah always talked about himself. Every piece he (laughs) writes is about himself and some other person. And, you know, he used to say, and I think I'm saying it in my my first book, that every good work of philosophy is a bit of autobiography. And, you know, some people actually complain that he read his thoughts into other people's minds. Uh, But I think he provided interesting interpretation of those ideas. And he was so knowledgeable that uh, he could really converse with other people from other cultures. He was an Anglo-Saxon philosopher, but he was actually Russian at heart, and he mm-hmm. was Jewish, he was different. Um, I think his interest in identity um, came out of that. In a piece I just wrote about Anthony Appiah's new book on identity, I actually um, looked at all the prominent people who wrote about identity and nationalism, and I would say, this is, I'm not sure about the statistics, but and the vast majorities are Jewish immigrants. <laughs> they found themselves somewhere in the world and actually was well integrated, but always felt different. And that had the ability. And the few that weren't, they were French Canadians and some people who were somehow in exile. Those are the people that even when everybody said identity is not important, say, hey, I'm, I'm not sure about it because I'm different, even though I'm integrated. And Isaiah used to say, I'm, you know, I'm not English, I'm an Anglophile. I'm a Russian Jew li- living in England, loving England, but I'm not an Englishman. And that I think a lot of people wouldn't agree with him because it was like the ultimate British dawn. But for him, from his own point of view, he wasn't English. He was an Anglophile. Yeah, that reminds me of Benjamin Disraeli, the whole yeah. idea. Yeah, which again, he wrote about. Um, it also reminds me of Moses Hess, uh, as you're discussing about Jewish writers talking about nationalism, because uh, Berlin talks about Moses Hess being among the first to really recognize the force of nationalism itself. And that comes back to the whole idea of the Zionism, which was one of your interests you mentioned. Yeah. So, well, this was uh, the... What I'd like to kind of kind of end on is to ask you then, it's one thing to say, hey, we need to do if the left needs to embrace nationalism, but it's another thing to actually do it. What actually needs to be done <laughs> to be able to reconcile this idea of liberalism and, and nationalism? What, what, what steps need to be taken what what changes in terms of strategy or approach need to be done to kind of um, bring those two together? First of all, consciousness. I, I think we need to understand where we went wrong. I think we have to come back home. As I said, the corona forced us now back home and now we are here. And I think you see it everywhere. I think one of the reasons that you see so much uh, unrest around the world in Israel, there are demonstrations every day now. You know, we've been stuck, sorry, with Netanyahu for many years. And now people feel the urge to bring about a change, partly because of the corona crisis, but partly, and nobody talks about it, it's because the elite, they are stuck home. And as we all know, revolution never starts with any other groups, but frustrated elites. 
and they are now here, they are now in America, they are now in Hong Kong, they are now in England. It's these people who are now stuck at home and they are rebelling because they understand that they should reshape their home. And it's very interesting for me, the thing that people shout here in the streets is not resign, but shame. We feel shame. And I think shame is an interesting concept because shame is something we feel about something that is connected to us, not to others. Shame is a concept of taking responsibility. And they, they shout shame on you, but they say you shame us because we, are, we belong to each other and we want uh, a better representation than what you offer. Now that's going to be, uh, hopefully that becomes the topic of your next book. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> the concept of shame that, that I, I don't recall that being mentioned uh, enough in your current book. And I think that's a, wow, that would be an interesting concept to kind of link together. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank uh, you. Yeah, this was a fascinating conversation. Again, it, her name is uh, Yael Tamir and the book is Why Nationalism? And uh, I definitely recommend it. It's it's an easy read, and it's uh, it will it will bring up some questions that you may not have thought of. Thanks again for joining me. Thank you. The Democracy Paradox Podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank James Schneider and the Princeton University Press who helped connect me with Yael Tamir and provided. A review copy of her book, Why Nationalism. I want to thank Apes of the State for permission to use their music. The introduction features their track, The Internet Song, and the outro will feature their track, Play Class Apology. You can find their music on Spotify or on their Bandcamp page. Finally, I want to take a second to genuinely thank my family. First of all, for keeping quiet while I record, but also their occasional participation. But most of all, I want to thank my partner, Julie Kempf, for making this possible. There are more moments than I care to admit where I am buried inside of a book or a journal article. She offers stimulating conversation and is always there, whether things are going well or sometimes when they're not. Please visit www.democracyparadox.com. This is my website where I have written over 70 reviews on works of political science and continue to write new reviews every week. And also, subscribe to the podcast. I publish new conversations each week where political theorists and political scientists will share their thoughts on topics that are important to democracy. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.